Now, let me ask you, can I ask you a personal question? As it's personal, don't answer out loud. Does your faith bring you joy and gladness? Does your faith bring you joy and gladness? Now, I know that not everyone here is a Christian, and that's great. We have different people with different worldviews present. Some of you are looking into Christianity, but you still have a faith. You still have a faith in something. So whether you're a Christian or not, let me ask you the question again. Does your faith bring you joy and gladness? Now, I don't mean the kind of artificial, superficial, silly, pretending joy, the kind of plastic smiles that no one's fooled by. We've all got different circumstances. We've all got different temperaments. And uh, the book of Job says, man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. We get that. But let me ask you again, does your faith, what you believe in, bring you joy and gladness? Ever. Does it ever? Because if it never does, then there's something wrong with it. If your faith never brings you joy and gladness, there's something wrong with it. And this morning is the perfect time to fix it. Jesus went to a wedding and the wine ran out. He told some servants to fill six huge stone jars. These are really big jars. And he changed water into wine. Now that immediately raises two questions in my mind. I don't know about you. Firstly, how does water become wine? Really? And secondly, what kind of person starts his life's mission by going to a party and providing 900 bottles of wine? <laughs> now, to answer those questions, we've got to see Jesus, really see him. And to do that, we need to meditate on this story and the details and let it kind of soak into our consciousness. And we need to recover its power because for some of us, this story has been killed by wedding sermons. In fact, I've killed it myself. I've preached on it more than once at weddings. And it's time to resurrect it. Because it's not really about a wedding. It's about Jesus. And we have to recover the original awe and wonder of the eyewitnesses who saw this really happen. And they saw his glory. And they put their faith in him. This story tells us three things about Jesus Christ, I think. Firstly, he is the God of wine. Secondly, he's the king of kings. And thirdly, he's the transformer of hopeless situations. Firstly, the God of wine. Back to our first question. How does water turn into wine? Now, first of all, I want to speak to those of you who are skeptical. You look at this kind of thing and you just think, I don't know, not sure about this. This may be the place that you have a problem with Christianity. You may like some of the ethics of Christianity. You may like the, the, the teaching about forgiveness and turning the other cheek and the emphasis on grace and love and all those things. You may be impressed with the lives of some Christians who you know, but when it comes to miracles, you really do start to find the whole thing a little bit ridiculous. Honestly, who believes this stuff really happened? Isn't it just myths and fables for pre-critical, pre-modern people? As a friend said to me last year, as far as I'm concerned, God and logic don't belong in the same sentence. Well, what does it take to turn water into wine? I always go to Wikipedia when I ask those sort of questions. According to Wikipedia, there's a process. First of all, you need some grapes. 
And so it really all starts with water, because grapes don't grow without water, do they? They're sucking in moisture all the time uh, from wherever they can get it, from their root system and from, I guess, from the rain as well. Without water, you've got no grapes. But grapes need time. They need time to grow and develop and suck in the moisture. And then you harvest the grapes and crush them. And the next stage is called primary fermentation. At this stage, you can add some yeast, or there may be natural yeast occurring on the skin of the grapes. And primary fermentation takes one to two weeks. And most of the sugar turns into alcohol and carbon dioxide. Anyone here old enough to remember Jeff Goldblum and the Holston Pills advert? Where the sugar turns to alcohol. Thank you, Gregor. Hand up. After the primary fermentation, that some of the wine is pumped off into tanks, and then they've got all the skins left. And if you're making red wine, they, they press those skins to get the remaining juice out. And the pressed wine is then blended with the free-run wine at the winemaker's discretion and expertise. And all during this time, the wine is kept warm, and the remaining sugars are converted into alcohol and carbon dioxide, which goes off into the atmosphere. And then there's malolactic conversion. This is a bacterial process to soften the taste. Red wine, then, is sometimes transferred into oak barrels to mature for weeks or even months. And then right before bottling, the wine has to be settled and clarified and last-minute adjustments made. So how long does it take? Well, according to Wikipedia, for Beaujolais Nouveau, it can, the whole process can take a few months, from harvest through to drinking. Months of work and expertise and development and processing. Now, according to the Gospel of John, Jesus Christ accomplished all of this just by speaking, just his words. He's not physically involved with filling the water. He tells other people to do that. He doesn't go and lay his hands on the jars, you know, kind of call down some power from heaven. He doesn't wave his arms in the air. He doesn't have a magic cloak. He just commands, and his speech creates. So what is the essence of this miracle? It's a miracle of creation. It's creation, and it's a shortcut, because water does become wine, doesn't it? It just normally takes a lot longer. Jesus accelerates a natural process, and he makes something happen instantaneously that normally takes months of work. Jesus doesn't take some water and then sort of pull a rabbit out of the hat, you know, or, or, or do some kind of magic trick. It's a creative, creating power at work within the boundaries of nature as we know it. Now notice how our story begins, will you? Uh, verse 1. On the third day. On the third day. Now there's a significant place in the Bible where these words, on the third day, occur. And it's right at the beginning. It's chapter 1 of the Bible, which is the creation account. And on the third day of creation, God speaks and dry land appears, vegetation comes out, trees are created and fruit. So could this be a hint that the creator God who spoke the first vines into existence is now present speaking words of creating power again? According to John chapter 1, which we looked at three or four weeks ago, Jesus of Nazareth is a unique human being. He's a unique person. He is the eternal God who has always existed in the presence of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, in an eternal, loving family, a tri-unity relationship between those three who are one. And he came all the way down to our world and joined himself to our nature. 
He joined himself to an unfertilized woman's egg in her womb. A teenage, unmarried mother. He was born as a baby, he grew as, grew as a boy, and he lived a fully human life. But he had two natures. He had a human nature and a divine nature. And John says that everything that has been made was made through Jesus. So Jesus is the creator come to earth. So with the birth of Jesus, the life of heaven has come down to earth. The creator has entered our world as one of us. So the more you get to know Jesus, the more you realize that this miracle is exactly the sort of thing we would expect to happen when heaven comes down to earth. It's exactly the sort of thing that we would expect with him around. In fact, at the end of chapter 1, Jesus made this extraordinary promise to one of his disciples, Nathaniel. He says, truly, I tell you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And the very first word of chapter, one, of chapter 2 in the original language is and. You will see heaven open and on the third day a wedding took place. So directly we're seeing now what Jesus is doing to show the life of heaven come down to earth. It's exactly the sort of thing we would expect if the God, the creator God, the God of wine, is here. Now, I know some of you are thinking, God of wine? I haven't heard that one before. The only God of wine that I'm aware of is the Greek God, Dionysus, or Bacchus. And he's a bit of a shady character. He's the God of wine, theater, fertility, religious ecstasy, and ritual madness. But, you know, Bacchus is the false god of wine. The true god of wine is actually the god of the Bible. He's the living god who makes grapes and gave them the inherent properties from which wine could be made. Listen to this from Psalm 104. Psalm 104. God makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens human hearts. Oil to make their faces shine and bread that sustains their hearts. It's the creator. According to the Bible, wine is a gift from God, and he's given it to make our hearts glad. Now, the last time I spoke on this subject, we had a, a GP in the church, and he was rather concerned and wrote to me later that day to express his concerns about the dangers of alcoholism. In his work, he'd seen the ravages that alcohol addiction can bring firsthand, and we have to acknowledge that. Our addiction to alcohol can ruin families and ruin lives throughout generations. And I've actually seen it in my own family. So speak from uh, first-hand experience. But abuse does not take away use. Abuse does not take away use. Many good gifts from God are abused in our world, such as the gift of sex. But I haven't heard many people arguing that we should abstain from sex because it's widely abused. Same thing applies to alcohol. A proper response to wrong use is not total abstinence, although you're free to abstain if you like, but modeling right use. As one of our elders, and you can all guess who it is, has been known to say, I drink wine on principle. <laughs> Those of you who know the leaders of the church can probably guess. He's right. Followers of Jesus Christ have liberty to enjoy all the good things that God has made within the boundaries that God has set, the boundaries of holiness and the boundaries of love for those who might struggle or stumble. 
And according to the Bible, wine is a gift from God. He's given it to make our hearts glad. He wants you to be glad. So this is how the Lord Jesus Christ first revealed his glory. By going to a party and bringing the wine. And not just picking out the cheap bottle from the cupboard. You ever been in this situation? You know you've got to take, it's one of those bring a bottle things. <laughs> He's laughing already. You've got two bottles and one of them's quite nice and then there's that other one. So you think, I'm either going to take the cheap one, which makes me look cheap, or I'll take the good one and hope nobody opens it and then I'll take it home at the end of the night. <laughs> Jesus Christ doesn't turn up with some grape juice made from concentrate. It's all I had in the cupboard. He provides about 160 gallons of top quality wine. That's how much those stone jars hold. Now that's over 900 bottles. Over 900 bottles. Now that, that got the party going, didn't it? What a wedding. Now what does that tell you about God? He loves parties. He's exceedingly generous. And he wants people to be glad. Now just think how different that is from what most people think of as religion. Most people think of religion as essentially joyless. Religion is a set of duties, mostly dull or kind of life-denying things. But you've got to do your duties to keep God off your back. You kind of have to pay him off. It's a little bit like an insurance policy. You know, I don't really enjoy paying insurance policies every month. It's the, it's the least exciting thing I have to spend money on. But I have to have them. It's not fun, but you've got to do it. And so for most people, religion is like an insurance policy. It's mostly miserable. And we have fun when we're not being religious, when we're getting up to no good, and we're getting away from God. But the first thing we learn about God here, the first thing we learn about Jesus, God incarnate, is that he's the God of wine. He turns up. He loves parties. He's exceedingly generous. He wants to be with people. He loves community, and he wants them to be glad. That's his nature. So let me ask you, particularly Christians here, is he your God? In other words, are you a Christian or a Pharisee? Now, the Pharisees were a protest group, and they were very popular at the time Jesus lived on earth. They believed the Bible. They loved it. They wanted everyone to know it. They wanted public morality, and they were devoted to their religion. But they hated Jesus Christ because he broke some of their rules. And one of their criticisms was that they said he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and they accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard, probably because he went to parties. Now, Jesus Christ was never drunk. But you can see where the criticism's coming from. Who is this guy? He seems to be enjoying himself too much. But that's his nature. He's a, nature, he's a being full of joy. So do you have a faith that brings gladness? Or do you have a religion of rules that brings misery and breeds superiority in your own heart? First thing we learn is that Jesus is the God of wine. Secondly, we learn that he's the king of kings. The king of kings. My second question, just to remind you, was what kind of person starts his mission at a party where he provides over 900 bottles of wine. Why was Jesus' first miracle to do with wine? Later on, he does perform some other spectacular miracles of provision. On one occasion, he took a packed lunch of five loaves and two fish from a boy, and he multiplied it and fed 
over 5,000 men, probably women and children as well. Everybody ate and was fully satisfied. And afterwards, 12 basketfuls of food was left over that had to be picked up. Another incident later again, in the end of John's Gospel, Jesus is on the shore and his disciples are out in the, in the, the boat and he, he causes them to cast their net out. And when they bring, try and bring the net back in, it's so full that they can barely drag it onto shore and they counted 153 large fish. He's an experienced fisherman. They've never seen anything like it before. Bread, fish. But why is the first sign wine? Well, the answer is that the king has come. The king has come. And to understand this, we need to realize that there's a theme of wine flowing through the Bible, even though some people have found it hard to swallow. Oh. Genesis 49, a very, very important text. If you want to turn to it, it's on page 55. This is towards the end of the book of Genesis. And in it, Jacob, the aging patriarch who's on his deathbed, really, he's, he's nearly... Uh, going to the undertakers, he calls for his sons and he says, I'm going to, I'll give you my, my last word and testament. And he blesses his sons. And during this, he calls them all out by name and he gives them these, these last words. But one guy, he singles him out in a remarkable way. And he makes him this incredible promise. And it's a son called Judah. And in verse 8, he says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? Now listen to this. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. So the aging patriarch Jacob speaks these words of prophecy about a figure who came to be known as the Messiah, the king who will bring peace to the world. The obedience of the nations will be his. He will be a descendant of Judah, which Jesus Christ was in the line of Judah. And it says he will, he will get his donkey, his colt, and he'll just go and casually tie it up to, a, to the best vine in the vineyard. Now that is absolutely reckless. No winemaker or farmer in the ancient world is going to tie a donkey to a vine. Because what's going to happen? No more vine. You know, the donkey's going to get a bit peckish before you know it. He's eating it all. So how come this guy, this great ruler, is going to come and tie his donkey to a vine? What's being implied here? The implication is that when the Messiah comes, God will restore creation and renew it. It will be a time of such joy and abundance and such plenty that you could tie your donkey to a vine and not even worry about it because there's so much here. And in times of scarceness, scarcity, and poverty, people would look at this text and think, wow, I'm looking forward to that time in the future. A time where, of peace and plenty. A time, actually, when we'll be glad. And that is what Jesus Christ has come to start. The wedding at Cana is the launch party. The fact that he's turned water into wine is a massive statement. It's not just that he has divine power. His statement is that the new age has begun. The new age is here. 
The Messiah is here, and his reign is one of gladness and joy. So let me ask you that personal question again. Does your faith ever bring you joy and gladness? Because if it never does, there's something wrong with it. And we need to get into that and fix it. And you're saying, oh, if only it was easy as that. Don't talk to me about joy and gladness. How superficial can you get? Nobody knows the trouble I've got. And it's true, I probably don't know your trouble, but I do know Jesus. And I do know that he turns up to change lives. Because the third thing we learn from our story is that Jesus is the transformer of hopeless situations. The transformer of hopeless situations. Scholars who've studied weddings in the ancient world um, have, have pointed out that weddings were a very big deal, especially to poor families. A wedding would be the focus of someone's dreams and aspirations for their whole life, building up to it. Poor families would save up for years. On the day of the wedding, they'd actually have the wedding in the evening, and they'd process through the village with lanterns and lights, making a big big song and dance, and everyone would know about it, and they'd go the longest route round to involve as many people as possible, and the, the, the couple would be married, and the next day, instead of a honeymoon as we do, we go away, the couple would host an open house, and they'd have everybody in their house for a week. You've got to feed every, and, and, and give everyone drink for a week. Now just think of the cost of this. But it's a community celebration. It's full of joy. So this could be the highlight of a poor family's life. And in fact, the whole village could be invited and maybe people would travel from further afield to come and be with them. It's a little bit like Asian weddings. If you've ever been involved in one or seen an Asian wedding, guests come from a long way off and they stay for a long time. And all the food and preparation that goes into it is considered a great privilege to host a wedding. It brings honor on your family. But you know what? It can also bring shame. And that's what happens this time. Mary's words are a classic of understatement. She comes up to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. Now, I'd love to know what her tone of voice was, but a few people at this moment are absolutely panicking. They've run out already. Maybe this family were poor. If the wine runs out, it brings social disgrace. This is beyond embarrassing. It's disastrous. It would take the family a long time to get over it. And they've got nowhere to turn. Here it is, the big day, and they failed to provide. All the hopes and dreams that go into a wedding are now in danger of being shattered. This is not a good way to start your married life. Take years to get over it. And then there's this sort of puzzling conversation between Jesus and his mother. And we need to clear a few things up because it does look rather confusing. Verse 4, he says, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, woman is not, as it sounds to us, a rude way of addressing. It's actually a polite way to address a woman. He, he addresses women like this elsewhere. And saying, why do you involve me, literally says, what is this to me and to you? What is this to me and to you? Which is a kind of uh, colloquial way of saying either it's not our problem or no problem. No problem. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Again, a bit cryptic. But as John's gospel goes on, we find out more and more that Jesus is looking forward and anticipating and preparing himself for a time that he refers to as his hour, his time. And when the hour comes, 
It's the hour of his crucifixion and death on a bloody Roman cross and his resurrection from death and ascension into heaven. That's his hour. And it's on the horizon. At the moment, it's about three years off. So he's saying, no problem. My hour has not yet come. And we know that Mary expected him to act because she immediately turns to the servants and look at her words to them there in verse 5. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. He's not saying, back off, mum. It's not the right time. He's saying, no problem. This is a small thing. I can deal with this. My hour of dark crisis is still off on the horizon. I'd be glad to help. And so she probably rather breathlessly says these words to the servants. Do whatever he tells you. And we can only guess at the tension because they've got six of these stone water jars. Each one holds 20 to 30 gallons. And that's a lot of water. Where did they get it from? Presumably there are people traipsing around with buckets and trying to go down to the river or go to the well. And Maybe it took, some scholars think it might have taken hours to fill them up and all the while the clock's ticking. And Mary and the disciples are standing there thinking, well, it's all very well you want to fill those jars up with water, but it's not really going to solve the problem, is it? But they have not yet realized who they're dealing with. Because the Lord Jesus is the transformer of hopeless situations. He doesn't need to help. He's just a guest. But he steps in and he uses his power on their behalf. And he transforms disappointment to joy, failure to success. This will be the wedding feast that everyone will remember for a very long time. And Jesus still does this today. He still steps into lives of tragedy, lives of failure, and lives of disappointment and transforms them. He still brings joy and gladness. So let me ask you, have you seen the power of Jesus at work in your life, in your own heart and mind and experience? Can you remember a time when you trusted him and he turned things around? Can you remember a time when you cried out to him in the dark and he answered your prayers? Can you remember a time when you were doubting and you believed and he changed things? Has your faith brought you joy and gladness? Ever. Now, if the answer is, no, it never has, or the answer is, well, I can remember when it did, but I'm not in a good place now, then let me give you three questions to think about that are from this passage. They're kind of like diagnostic questions. You know how when you go to the doctor and they, they ask you some diagnostics, you know, how long have you had these, these symptoms and uh, what other things have been going on? Well, here are three diagnostic questions from this passage. At the end in, of the story, in verse 11, it says that Jesus revealed his glory. His disciples saw his glory, his greatness, his manifestation of his power. So are you looking at his glory? In your life, day by day, not Sunday morning, I mean Monday morning, Thursday afternoon, Friday night. In your heart of hearts, are you looking at Jesus Christ and his glory or are you constantly looking at your own situation? Do you spend most of your time focusing on your problems and on yourself? Because if you do, your whole world starts to kind of shrink down and get darker and darker and darker, and all you're left with is misery. They saw his glory. 
So first question is, what are you beholding? What are you looking at? Second question is based on what the disciples did. Verse 20, uh, 11 again. They believed in him. They believed in him. Now, believing in Jesus Christ is not the same thing as believing in Henry VIII. I suspect most of you believe in Henry VIII, especially now that Wolf Hall is on. Henry VIII, we all believe in him. We believe he existed. But believing in Jesus Christ is not just about uh, acknowledging that a historical figure existed. Believing in Jesus Christ means trusting yourself to him in complete confidence. Total commitment to him. Leaning your life on him, leaning into him, trusting him. So you stop regarding Jesus as just a figure in history. You start following Jesus as your Lord, Savior, and husband. Are you believing? You know, you Christians here, you started out believing. That's how you began the journey. But are you still believing? Or are you letting your doubts rule you and ruin you? Are you beholding? Are you believing? And thirdly, are you obeying? Remember Mary's words to those servants. Do whatever he tells you. Whatever he tells you. And we know that Jesus hasn't come to give us hundreds of new laws and make our lives miserable. We know that Jesus himself said, uh, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me because my yoke is light and my burden is not heavy. We know that he welcomes everyone, all sinners to him. But he takes you from where you are and takes you to where he wants you to be. So you have to do what he tells you. Now, those of you who are Christians, you know there are things in your life that Jesus has commanded you to do or not to do. And if you're consciously, deliberately, continually sinning, if you have patterns of habits of sin in your life that are not being dealt with, let me tell you what that will do. It will take away your joy. It will take away your gladness. It spoils your spiritual health. One of the biggest reasons for spiritual depression is sin, disobeying Jesus. So you may have the power in your own hands to do something about this. They saw his glory, they believed, and they obeyed. Are you doing that, friends? It's very easy to blame churches, you know, blame, blame you know, community groups not very good, or we don't do enough Bible, or... When we pray, we're not really praying. Or, you know, I don't really have any great Christian friends. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay, life is what it is. But you have power in your own gift from Jesus to live a life that, that grows. Are you making use of the things he's given you? As I close, I just want to point out what I think is the most extraordinary thing about this whole story. And it's not the miracle. The most extraordinary thing about this story is not the vast amount of wine that Jesus creates. The most extraordinary thing is that most of the people at the wedding completely miss what has just happened. Most of the people actually miss out. The disciples know about it, but at this stage there may only be four or five of them. Jesus' mother knows about it. She doesn't say much. And the servants who filled the jars up know it. But everybody else is completely ignorant. They love the gift of wine which made the party go like a train. But they did not know the giver. They remained strangers to him. It's comical. The master of the banquet tastes the wine and he says, oh, it's great stuff. He doesn't even know where it's come from. 
And the bridegroom, he actually seems to be quietly taking a bit of credit for the wine. He doesn't fess up. Oh, actually, it was Jesus. These guys are loving the gift, but they don't know the giver. They don't know the giver. So let me close by asking, where are you in this story? Where are you? Are you one of the guests enjoying the life that the creator has given you, but ignoring his presence day by day? Or are you a disciple, seeing his glory, putting your faith in him, and doing whatever he tells you? May God give us the grace to be disciples. Amen? Let's pray, shall we? Sovereign Lord, loving Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for the journey that he made for us. We thank you that he loved us so much that he put aside his riches and became poor. We thank you that he brought us these vivid, life-changing, extraordinary miracles which are signs pointing to who he is and who you are and the way that is now open for us to come back to you. Thank you for that water turned into wine, for the joy and gladness that you wish to give to us. We know that we still live in a world that's often a veil of tears. We know that darkness is across our path. We know that for some it's very hard. But we do pray, Lord, break into our minds and our consciousness. Send your Holy Spirit to us, the Spirit who brings life and light and joy and gladness. Change us. Transform us. Take us out of our hopelessness and give us hope, we pray. And we pray for those here who are outside of Christ outside of the kingdom, but looking in. And maybe they want to be part of him. Maybe they want to have joy and gladness. And we pray, Lord, send your Holy Spirit now that you would transform people in this room, even as we pray. Because we ask it in Jesus' name and for his greater glory. Amen.